All right. Everybody got a sheet? Yep. All right, and we are studying? Galatians. Galatians. I said it already, so you should definitely get it right. All right, go ahead and open to Galatians. So we are finally to what I kind of call the meat. Technically, he's already he's been in the meat since he started. But for me, uh, I consider this the formal beginning of his theological argument. Technically, so far, he, he's made one point, and then he's backed it up by his life experience. But it makes sense of that point. Let's back up and talk about the context of the book as a whole. So why did Paul write the book of Galatians? I'm going to give him the short answer. Counter the Judaizers. Counter the Judaizers. So I think that's the blank in the first line. So Paul writes Galatians in response to Judaizers who are forcing the Christian Gentiles to conform to which law? Old Testament would work. I'm going to call it Mosaic which is the Old Testament law. And in particular, um, what laws could you think of that they're probably primarily meaning? Of course, they mean them all, but circumcision is major. All right, diet. Let's put in parentheses the one that we care about is bacon. That's true. Um, And that's going to culminate in an idea of fellowship. We'll discuss that in a moment. So Paul opens the gospel, you may remember, with uh, what kind of attitude? It's almost harsh. He's like, I can't believe you. How, how could you possibly make a stupid decision? I mean, it's very, compared to his other letters anyway, this is Paul's kind of mean. Uh, he gets downright aggressive at times, uh, especially further on. If you look at... Uh, Chapter 3, verse 1, you see a little bit of this. Oh, foolish Galatians. You know, that's maybe in modern etiquette not the best way to handle controversy. It's the, kind of like I say, you big stupid. Big stupid. Let's talk, you know. I mean, he's got an attitude with them because he just can't fathom how they could fall for this. Have you ever watched a friend fall for a gimmick? And it's like, you just, from a distance, you're just looking and you're like, golly. You know, how could you possibly not see what this is? Well, that's what the attitude Paul has here. He's he's looking at the scenario, the Judaizers coming in and saying, you've got to get circumcised, right? All the men in the room should at least stop, pause, and go, do I really need to do this? It has to be a pretty convincing argument, I believe, but they're falling for it. Paul just doesn't understand. So he's very aggressive. He says, you can't change the gospel. There's only... One true gospel. So Paul reminds the church that there is only one gospel which came from Jesus directly. It's a key for Paul. When he says he got it directly from Jesus, and he goes to recount that, what does he mean? He got it directly. Like literally directly. Like spending one-on-one, face-to-face, person-to-person, in the flesh, spent time with Jesus and got this directly by Revelation. Well, what is that model? He did that for three years. What does that relate to? The apostles, the other apostles did it for the three-ish years of Jesus' ministry. So he's emphasizing that he got it directly from Jesus, just like they did. But furthermore, and this is what we finished last week, he whole scenario where he went down to Jerusalem, presented the gospel for them. And what did they add to his gospel? Nothing. They, he, they only requested that we do one thing. What was that? 
Remember the poor. And what do you say about that? We, we wanted to do that anyway. That's so obviously we want to remember the poor. So they added nothing. So Paul recounts his conversion, reception of the gospel, and then the encounter with the Jerusalem apostles as proof that his gospel is the true gospel. So we're already having this argument 20 years into the development of the church that the one gospel is the one gospel. There's no change. The apostles and Paul are all on the same page about what that one gospel is. And so before we go further, it's probably fruitful then for us to, at least in a very simplistic way, define that gospel as the apostle Paul defines it. So just simple definition is what? Simple definition of the gospel. Do it. All right, so Jesus... Simple, it's just we're going to say he died for uh, yeah, okay, us. It's true. I'm going to emphasize that. And then after that, he rose. All right? But that's the truth of the gospel. What's What makes it good news? Where does it lead? So it does what to me? Saves. Right. So saves if I do what? Faith. Saves with faith. So you faith in this thing, you're saved. That's the message he's preaching. So circumcision has nothing to do with it. Good works has nothing to do with it. Um, <laughs> there's nothing else, actually. It's faith in Jesus equals salvation. Now, Paul gets criticized a lot for this gospel. Because some people say, well, that means you could just keep sinning. And Paul says, well, well, no, it doesn't It doesn't mean that. But if you make that accusation, you are hearing Paul correctly. It does sound like he's saying that. Because um, all we have to do is put faith in Jesus to be saved. All right, so with that in mind, let's dive into the new passage tonight. So he's still back in time. This is Galatians chapter 2, verse 11. Uh, but when Cephas came to Antioch. So when Paul writes the letter, he's probably in Antioch, but this story is some probably years earlier, um, way before the events of Acts chapter 15, but after those of Acts 11, probably. And so when Cephas came to Antioch, um, who is Cephas? Peter. This is Peter. And he comes, if you may remember, he, he went north, down, to Antioch. So I do better when I have a visual for kind of where the progression's happening. So if y'all are cool with that, we're just going to redraw the map real quick if that works for you. It gets a little less accurate each week. But that's okay. All right, so you with me? So this is the Mediterranean Sea. Very good. All right, what nation is here? Egypt. So what river is that? Nile. Very good. Red Sea. So that's water. And this is water. It's also a sea. What's it called? Dead Sea. Dead Sea. Then there's a river, Jordan, Jordan and then the Little Sea. <laughs> or balloon. I don't know. It's a Sea of Galilee. So Jerusalem is like there. Antioch, however, way up here. So geographically, they consider this up and that down. So Paul is hanging out here at the Antioch Church. Very famous church. It's the second center of Christianity in the first age. The first center, of course, is Jerusalem. 
And whose ministry was primarily in Jerusalem? Peter. Peter. And really all of the original 12. In fact, if you read Acts, we get to the end of chapter 7 before they really leave town. And that's because of the persecution that breaks out under Saul, who is now Paul. So it's here first, then it was Antioch. And Antioch is also, if you know your narrative in Acts, this is the place where the first true Gentile mission begins. Now, technically, it happened with Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. Peter comes home. He gets criticized for those Gentiles getting saved because those Gentiles didn't get circumcised. They didn't start following the law. And the circumcision party got mad at him. They had a little dispute. Peter wins. And then super ministry breaks out up here. They send Barnabas to go check it out. Barnabas gets there. And what's his verdict? Yay or nay? Yay. He's like, double yay. He's amazed at what's going on. And he says, I know the perfect guy to do this ministry. Of course, who's that? Saul. He goes over to Tarsus. He's still Saul. He grabs Saul, brings him back to Tarsus, and does his ministry there till the first missionary journey. Then he becomes the Apostle Paul. He's known now at this point for being the missionary. He's a Jew, but he's the missionary to the Gentile people. So sometime after that, Paul's doing his missionary work. They had sent... Barnabas to check things out. At some point, however, Peter leaves and goes to check out, see what's going on in Antioch. Now, why do you think he's there? He just wants to see. I mean, who is he? He's Peter. He's one of the pillars of the church. He's even in the book of Revelation, he's one of the foundation stones. So in some sense, he's a he's a founding member, so to speak, of the church. He just wants to see the great things that God is doing in Antioch. He gets to Antioch and that's where we are in Galatians 2.11. So when Cephas came to Antioch Paul says, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Not to say he stood condemned it's just to be, it's his way of saying because he was clearly in the wrong. He did something that was clearly wrong but before he tells us what the wrong thing is he's going to tell us what the right thing is. He didn't show up with this bad attitude. The bad attitude, the the condemned portion of his behavior came after he got there. He showed up in a good spirit in the right place. So verse 12, for before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. So before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. So what is Peter? Jew or Gentile? He's Jew. Was it a big deal that he's eating with the Gentiles? Yeah, they do not do that. There's a number of reasons why. One of the main reasons is what are Gentiles eating? And it's not even necessarily bacon. It could be bacon. But it could be any meat. Just meat in general. But it's a, to use a later word, it's not kosher. And the particular way that most of this meat is not kosher, if you went and bought it at the supermarket, it's been offered to a pagan god. Gentiles get saved. What do they do with this meat? Mm, tasty. <laughs> Ribs taste just as good after they got saved as they did before. No change for them. Um, Jews have a hard time eating that meat. It says, though, however, so because of that, Jews and Gentiles did not ever in society eat at the same dinner table. That was absolutely taboo 
and forbidden. You don't do that. Well, all right, so let's fill in the first point. So in society, Jews and Gentiles did not share table fellowship. So why would a Jew be willing to break fellowship with someone over the meat? And easy enough just to not eat it when you show up. Why would this be such a big deal to them? They're not even willing to be in the room if that meat's in that room. Ritually unclean. Ritually unclean. What'd you say? Condoning it. Sorry, Blake. It would be condoning. It would be condoning it. Okay. Think about Jewish culture. Holiness had a spatial value. You know what I mean by spatial? A location could be holy. So for Jews, can you think of a specific location, a tangible, definable spot that was holy? Yeah, the temple. The temple's on, and even at the temple, there's concentric circles. The word holy is a big deal for Jewish people. Well, what did God call them to be in the Old Testament? His people. Holy. His people. To be his people was to be away from and separate from. Now, they could be in the middle of. But even if they were in the middle of folks, they had to be distinct from those folks. There's a lot of ways they were distinct. One was the food. They don't eat the same food. They don't wear the same clothes. They don't dress the same at all. They don't shave the beard the same way. All of these scenarios, they do it very differently. So they could be holy. They could be designated as God's people no matter where they were. Even if they weren't spatially close to the temple, they could take that concept and be spatially holy even in a group of unholy people. Because if there's 100 people in this room and five Jews, the five Jews are standing side by side. A group. Of course, we do this today in a million different ways. You get a group of people together and people who have similar interests, similar background, have a tendency to group together. But this isn't a tendency. This is a core tenet of who they are. They separate. So that's culture for them. You always knew the Jewish community in a pagan town because it was set apart. They were different. They were acted different. They looked different. They dressed different. And they didn't eat my, they didn't come to my restaurant. You know, they, they wouldn't eat that meat. So very different. They would not hang out together. But what's Peter doing here in verse 12? He's hanging out with So from a Jewish perspective, this is a radical change culturally. To all of a sudden, I go from my synagogue where no Gentiles went to I go to the church. And not only can I have table fellowship with the Gentile, it's required. So think through that. In the, Jew, in the church, Jews and Gentiles were required to share table fellowship. Can you think of why? Why did they have, they had to sit at the same table and eat the same meal? Well, community, oh, you're almost there. Community? Unity. Unity. Well, there's a specific meal. They had to literally sit at the same table. The Lord's Supper. They literally were required to have table fellowship. It's the body. It's part of their faith. Their regular practice was to gather around the table. And at this stage in their history, communion wasn't a little piece of styrofoam-tasting bread and a juice cup. Right? That's not what it looked like for them. This was lunch or supper. This was today's meal. They ate it together. And during that meal, they would do Lord's Supper. In fact, in early parts of church history, this was called the love feast, the agape meal or the agape feast. And 
calling it that gave it a bad reputation in Greek circles. You can imagine why. But uh, that's what they did. They got together and they ate a meal together. So Peter, when he shows up to Antioch, and now it'd be pretty bold to eat a meal with the Gentiles down here in Jerusalem. But in Antioch, is there more Gentiles or more Jews? There are way more Gentiles. No big deal. No peer pressure for Peter. He could eat with those Gentiles. He's supposed to. He knows this. Which side of the team was he on when this was debated in the Jerusalem church? Gentile. He was pro-Gentile. Hey, they don't have to follow the law. They just believe. Holy Spirit fell down. They spoke in tongues. So he's totally having table fellowship with those Gentiles. But it says, when those men from James came, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. So when we say circumcision party here, who are we talking about? Judaizers. It's the Judaizers. It's what we call them. I thought I had a note on that somewhere. What's the next one? Yeah, yeah, it's there. So the group of, from James is the same group that gave Peter trouble after the conversion of, you remember? Cornelius, very good. After the conversion of Cornelius. It's that same group. So this group is missional. Like they're going places to make sure this ideology sticks. That's a motivated false gospel. They're going around to preach it. False gospels are they're always that. They're always evangelistic. Um, it's a false evangelism. They're always evangelistic. So they show up, and Peter fears them. And start separating. So can you imagine coming into communion during church? And last week, everybody did it together. And then this week, we go, oh, before we have communion, all right, all you Gentiles, you need to leave the room and go do communion somewhere else. It's a pretty bold change. He makes such a, Peter's like, okay, I'm going to go eat with those guys. Now, of course, what do you think Paul's doing? making a bacon sandwich. <laughs> you know, it's like, uh-uh. Not how this works. But then the text goes on to say, very sadly, is the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with them. So it's like, these guys from James, these, the circumcision party, wins. The Jews are all, hey, yeah, actually, that makes my conscience feel a little better anyway. These Jews are really uncomfortable with the Gentiles being in the room anyway. So, hey, you know what? Maybe, maybe we were wrong. We can go back to that prejudice and we're calling it holiness, but it's really a form of prejudice. And uh, let's just start separating ourselves. And it gets so bad, I love how the way Paul words this, that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Now, what does that tell you Paul believes about Barnabas? It's like that's Paul's bottom of the, like, the worst thing that could possibly happen is turning Barnabas. Because he's Barnabas. I just love how it's like, he has a very high view of Barnabas. He has a fight with him later. That's later in church history. But uh, he's just like broken heart. Even Barnabas is led astray. So for him, Barnabas is mentioned as an extreme example of the power of the Judaizers. All right, then, what's Paul do? Verse 14. But when I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you... Though a Jew live like a Gentile and not a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Now, what's he saying? You're a hypocrite. You're a hypocrite. Last week you ate the you ate the bacon, Peter. You were eating the bacon in this room. Or even if you weren't eating the bacon, you were sitting at the table 
with the guys who do. You were here. You were worshiping the same Jesus in the same room, at the same table, and now you're leaving? You're changing the definition of justification is what you're doing. This is a gospel issue, and what you're doing is out of step with the gospel. So Paul's confrontation was public, and it pointed out Peter's hypocrisy. That's what he's showing. So Paul's confrontation is public. See that he did. But when I saw their kind of was not set with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter, before them all. Well, why do you think he did it that way? Because, I mean, technically, technically, if we followed Matthew's order of church discipline, what's the first step? You would go one-on-one. But we see, and this is consistent throughout the New Testament, every time it's a gospel issue, it's public and immediate. Paul has no, you don't jump through hoops on that. Um, you preach a false gospel, you can be excommunicated on the spot. It's not in the same category. The gospel's in a special spot. If you come in here and say, hey, you know what, Jesus isn't God, that's changing the gospel. And Paul's attitude on that is you get the leaven out of the lump. That's poison. If you leave it in the room, somebody might catch it. It's a contagious sin. So he's got a very harsh attitude towards any sin that directly deals with the gospel. So Paul's, sorry, Peter's hypocrisy was in conflict with the gospel. That's why he's so aggressive with it. Now we can ask the question, now isn't all sin technically in conflict with the gospel? Let's just think through that for a second. Paul is not accusing Peter of preaching a false gospel, however. Because if he was preaching a false gospel, what would Paul have done in that scenario, do you think? (laughs) Throwing him out. Not what he does, though. There's tears here. Preach a false gospel, have nothing to do with that guy. Well, that's not what Peter's doing, because how did he verify his own gospel earlier in this chapter? I went down to Jerusalem and I talked to who? Peter. And what they say? Oh, right hand fellowship. That's the right gospel. He knows Peter believes the gospel. So he's not accusing Peter of preaching a false gospel. Instead, Paul is accusing Peter of acting in a way that denies the truth of the gospel. Peter's a leader, and his sin is public and needed to be dealt with publicly. So Peter's actions and Peter's theology were out of sync. That's the argument. Now, Paul is now going to go very deep into theology and explain how one gets welcome to the table. In other words, how does faith save you? What do we mean when we say that? So why can the Gentiles sit at the same table that the Jews were technically already sitting at? Verse 15. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Let that sink in. Yeah, we're Jews. We're not Gentile sinners. What's he just done? Separated. And what's his basis for separation? So you got two classes of people. We could call it maybe first tier, second tier. Second tier is Gentiles. Or in other words, sinners. Let's work it out. If Jews are up here, what do we put in parentheses? Chosen or holy. Chosen, all those are good words. I'm going to go with righteous for the sake of the passage. Those are the righteous. I mean, think about it. These are Old Testament categories. You read this in the Old Testament, especially the Psalms, the Proverbs. 
you got two classes of people. You have the, the righteous, and usually instead of sinners, it's the wicked, or sometimes the unrighteous. God blesses this group and destroys and judges this group. So Paul's admitting this distinction. Is he false to say this? Well, okay, I'll take the fact that it's hard to answer that question as you kind of understand where we're going with this. There is a genuine sense in which God took this group of people and made them different. They had the sacrificial system. They had a righteousness that came by faith. They were in a different group. And then the Gentiles are in a different category. This is really Paul just, he's not really being prejudiced here so much as he's referencing the reality of being a chosen people in the Old Testament. They were God's people. They were special. They were unique. They had a holy place before God. The temple was theirs and their land, their nation. Now we can easily break it down and say, but not every Jew was necessarily really in that camp. Plenty of Jews were really down here. But the generalized position was for a lot of cases the same. You went up to a Jew before Jesus came and said, well, who's Who's going to raise from the dead with the righteous? And who's going to raise from the dead to the, the unrighteous kingdom of death? What would every Jew answer that question with? This distinction. Because these are the covenant people of God, and these are not. So it feels very prejudiced. But in a sense, it's also theologically sound from an Old Testament perspective. So he's saying, we, we know this. Right? We're, we're Jews. We're not these guys. You can argue that this is the, the one generation in history where the split has happened. Yeah. These guys were Jews who became Christians. That, that is that, that, that very is true. Very true. So this is a very thin. Yeah, it's a unique history. sliver of history where we have this conversation. That's valid. But let's see what Paul does with it. So, so we know this distinction. Verse 16. Yet, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. We know none of us got here. So what kind of Christian, what kind of Jew is he talking to? Christian Jews, not Jews in general. He's talking to Christian Jews, and all of them know what in their life made them Christian. Their faith. They've been doing the works thing already. It was not doing that. And going to faith instead that got them in this new label of God's people. This new idea of Christianity. This new table fellowship. He said, we know this. All right, so now we're going to move into a section where we're going to get... How are we doing on time? Yeah, we got a few minutes. Let's, uh, well, let's fill in some blanks, then, then we'll do it. So, no false contrast between sinners and Jews. Gentiles equals sinner. All the Jewish believers knew that they had become Christians by faith alone. Because think about this. Because really we have two number ones now. All of those Jews were born here. And then they became this. Which proves that being this didn't make them this. So by default, calling yourself a Christian Jew, you already have said you're Jewish, this didn't save you. 
Does that make sense? It's built into the statement. It's kind of like when you come to church, it's like you're saying you're broken. Like that's the whole point of the gospel. I can't be saying. Like by them becoming Christian was saying being Jewish wasn't enough. It wasn't the right thing. That's Paul's argument so far. Are you with me? All right, then we, we've made this. All right, all right, so definition of justification. To do that, now we're going to get grammatical. So I think it's verse, I think it's in 17. Let me look back. He says, we all know, or 16, we all know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but instead justified through faith in Jesus. Now, in the Greek, it does not say through faith in Jesus. That's how we write it in English. Greek is a very different kind of language. We have an explicit language. Greek prizes itself in being an implicit language. So the difference is Greek will avoid speaking directly if it can. And so to use a more nuanced way of writing, and Luke, Acts, and Hebrews are very good at this, which is why it's considered very hard Greek to read, because it's the opposite of how we think. Paul's kind of in between. So we're going to walk over what this literally says. I'm going to write it in English, but I'm going to write it the way it reads literally in Greek. Does that make sense? We are justified faith of Jesus. So in English, well, technically it's not even that. It's just justified faith of Jesus. So for us, to make this sentence make sense, what do we have to add to it? I'm going to go ahead and put the we are, just, just to keep that. So we have to put justified, so what do we have to put there? For but, what, what part of speech is that? Preposition. Preposition. I have no idea. Is it S? Okay. Yeah. And then here... What'd you say? You break it for me? Yes, he is. I do know Greek better than English. Which is fair. Okay. That is true. I have more hours in it. Okay. So we are justified, we would say by faith in. Okay, so the question is, how do we know that we're putting the right prepositions in? Now this is one of those places where Greek is a very different language than English. So probably never use this word but in English we do have it we just don't have it to the same degree Greek does this thing called declension nope, nope. <laughs> okay so you actually know several examples of this so pr pronouns can you give an example of a pronoun okay so there's a big difference between I he they they're very different but what's the difference between I and me Oh, you're rustling. Okay, technically they're the same word. Yeah. It's the first personal pronoun. That's what it's called. First person, meaning I, me. If I made it possessive, I could say my or my. Really, those are all the same word in different declensions of that same word. English is dumb because when you take the word you, you decline it into the plural form, and it's you. That's stupid, by the way. So we fix it in English. 
y'all. So we, we dis differentiate between singular and plural, whereas formal English is not. So if I made the first personal pronoun plural, it would be we or us. Right? So we, the difference between we and they is not plurality, it's whether or not I'm in it. Right? You with me? So this is still a first personal pronoun, it's just plural. Anybody lost already? All I'm saying is that words in English sometimes can be written differently to tell you how they work in a sentence. First, I wouldn't say, me went to the store. But you all know what it meant. But what's correct here? Hi. Right? That's, that's what I wouldn't say. And I wouldn't say, give it to I. What would I say? Give it to me. I'll give it to me. All right, so whether I use I or me just tells me which part of the sentence it is. That's declension. And it's it's a difference between an objective and nominative case. You don't have to know those words. It's just that's what it means. So in Greek, this word is what we'll call a genitive. It's just for us it would be an of something or through something. It just it describes the relationship of that word to the rest of the sentence. So we're justified through something. Well, that something is faith. Which word's genitive? The faith is genitive. In this case, actually, both are. All right, so these, these words. All right, here, here's where I'm going to... So far, it doesn't matter. But you're with me at all? Anybody just totally lost? I know we're, we're, this is like super in the weeds. I get that. But it will matter in just a second. Okay. So tell me if I could... Say, say this, if this is doctrinally true. I am saved by the love of God. True or false? Indirectly, maybe. Indirectly. Well, let me, if we want to say that, let me just change the preposition. Let me make it because of. Can I say that? Yes. The affirmatives? Mm -hmm. The negatives. <laughs> I got two negatives. Okay. Because this word technically is a noun from the sentence, right? But it's also still a verb. It's a verbal idea. It's called a verbal noun. The idea of love is a verb even though I can use it as an act. We say love is an action, you have to say things like that. So the question is, with God, is I am saved because of God loving me, or am I saved because of me loving God? That expression could mean either of those. You follow the difference? I'm saved by the love of God, meaning my love of God. Or am I saved by God's love of me? Alright, sure, sure, sure. Let me give you a different example where it's clear. Just for the sake of clarity. So I could say I am saved by the work of law. Oh, because who's doing the work in that sentence? I. You assume I. 
grammatically, the sentence is structured identically. It's still a verbal noun with an of and all. But I'm interpreting this one as me doing the work, not the law doing the work. It's a matter of perception. So our problem is, you understand? You, you yeah, try yeah, going yeah, in? Okay. All right. Yeah. All right. So the question is, we are justified by the faith of Jesus. Is it because I'm justified by Jesus' <coughs> faith? Maybe I could put fullness. Or am I justified by my faith in Jesus? But which one did Paul mean? Is there any difference between the statements? So I could be saved by Jesus' faithfulness and me not participating. Or I could be saved by my faith in Jesus and Jesus not participating. Depending on how you word it, right? You see the, the conundrum here? Right? The difference between these two things is the doctrine of salvation versus the doctrine of assurance. Your faith doesn't save you. Jesus does. Remember the analogy with the, the two Hebrew men in Genesis and uh, the Exodus story? Remember that one where they, they both sacrifice, one doesn't have much faith though, but whichever one wakes up with their firstborn alive. You remember this one? Yeah. Both of them. Why? Because it was the object that saved. It's the faithfulness of Jesus that saves me. So in order to be saved, I have to believe Jesus' sacrifice is good enough. If I don't believe that, I'm not saved. There's no room for doubt. Doubt means lost. So I'm not sure Jesus is capable. That ain't faith. But that's usually not the problem. The question I'm usually asking is, I don't know I put real faith in Jesus. I know he's capable. But that I do this right. Which question do we usually use when we're doubting? It's the second one. We have a genuine acknowledgement. Hey, what Jesus did is enough. Is what I did enough? Now, if we emphasize the what I did part, what are we doing? Yep, don't make it mine. Avoid that at all costs. Doesn't need to be, I'm not saying by my faith. But do I have faith? Yeah, I do. Yeah, I do have to have faith in Jesus to be saved. But the point of salvation is not how great my faith is. It's how faith, great Jesus' faith is. Paul's going to do everything he can here to destroy the argument that we participated in salvation in any contributive way. We don't save ourselves. So follow how he works this out. So, so we know this. So because we know this, middle of verse 16, we believe in Jesus. And that one... It is the we do the faith one in that one. There's no question in the way it's worded. So we do the faith in Jesus because we believe his faith saves us in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will ever be justified. So you can't do something that makes you righteous. Jesus can. 
Jesus can make you righteous. You cannot make you righteous. Jesus can. So, definition of justification. What we've said so far, there's two groups. There's the righteous and the sinner. That is still true in Christianity. The righteous and the sinner. The question here is how do you get the label righteous? Right? How do you get that label? Well, he has to give it to you. So I can't earn that label. There's no sense I can fill in that blank in a way that makes it a work. So justification means being put into the camp of righteous. So Jesus puts us in the camp of righteous. It is because we are in Christ, the righteous one, that we are counted righteous in Christ. Okay, now think about this. You remember the story of David and Goliath? Right, the basics of that story are simple. David kills Goliath. And he's small, Goliath's big. Right, but we're missing kind of the bigger part of the narrative is what was at stake in the battle between David and Goliath? Who wins the war? Wins the war. You have two groups. You know, we always like to make ourselves David in that story. And whatever our problem is in life is Goliath. Probably not the best way to think that story. The person you relate to in the story is you're the Israelite who's standing on the battlefield looking over at Goliath going, we're dead. We have no hope. And this little boy, who is up named Jesus, shows up and wins the battle for me. And now my team is labeled as what? Victor. Did I do anything to do that? No. The only... The only way I get that label is by being in the army that needed his help. Now, if I had seen the, the problem and changed sides, that wouldn't have worked out for me. I just need to be in Jesus' group. Right? So, however, what do I do to be in the group? I just believe in his name. So, hey, I want this one. So faith is that we do faith. We do that part. But we do that on a part in a way that does not save us. It puts us in relation with Christ. So we go too far when we make faith the agent of salvation. Faith is the agent of my relationship with Christ. That's how I know him. And if I'm in him, I get the benefits of his salvation. We're getting nerdy here. But theologically, this is incredibly significant. Can you see the difference? Yeah, they go to the verse, you know, you are saved by grace through faith. It's yes. The grace faith does the saving. Yes. yes. Faith puts me in relation to Christ who saves me. My faith doesn't save me. So that's the significance of justification by faith. So because we are in Christ, the righteous one, we are counted as righteous. So there's still two groups. There's still the righteous and the unrighteous. It's just the way I get there is not by being Jewish. It's not by becoming Jewish. It's not by taking circumcision. It's not by going to church. It's not by being a good person. It's simply because I know Jesus. I have a relationship with him. How do I start that relationship with him? Faith. So you've got to put faith in the right place. So we still have the two groups, sinners. And then I'm going to call it the righteous so when Paul's Gentile audience got saved, which camp did they move to? They moved to the righteous camp. Not because they were righteous, not because their faith made them righteous, but because it put them in relationship with Jesus. 
and Jesus makes them righteous. His team wins. He's the David who slew, slew Goliath. You follow me? However, from a Jewish perspective, if you look at those Gentiles who are called righteous, which camp do they look like they belong in? They still look like this group. Have you ever gone to church and look at those people and go, oh, those don't look like God's people? But it happens, right? This is what happens. So the Jews show up to Paul's church, the circumcision party, and they see all these guys that look like this. They're actually over here. They're saved. But from an outward perspective, they're looking like, hey, looks like they're on the center side. So hear Paul's next statement. So, but if in our endeavor to be justified, see this, in Christ, justified in Christ, if while we're trying to be justified in Christ, we too are found to be sinners. Well, sinners in what way? We still look like the wrong group because they're not circumcised. They're still eating the meat. They're still doing lots of things that the Jews aren't comfortable with, hanging out in places the Jews aren't comfortable with. They still look like sinners. The question then is, does that mean Jesus failed, or does that mean Jesus, his strategy produces sinners? Well, what's his answer? No, 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 because we're defining it wrong. Verse 18, for if I rebuild what I tore down, what did Paul tear down? Defining this as law. So law said, Paul says, nope, I destroyed that. And if I rebuild that, then which calf would I be in? <laughs> this is the one that's law-based. He said, if I rebuilt what I tore down, then I proved myself to be a transgressor. But that's not what he's done. Verse 18. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. And then probably the most famous verse in all of Galatians. So here it in its right context. I have been crucified with Christ at the with relationship. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me and the life I now live, I live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So Paul's defining his Christianity by what? Christ. His relation to Christ. Not, therefore, what? Not the law. Works of any kind. <clears throat> Even faith is a work. That's not what makes him worthy to sit at the table of the righteous. The only thing that makes him worthy to sit at the table of the righteous is Jesus invited him to the table. He knows Jesus. Jesus gave him a spot at the table. So let's fill in these last few points. So Paul's Gentile converts were justified by faith, but still looked like sinners. Of course, in the Gentile way. A true believer isn't one who outwardly performs the works of the law, but who inwardly lives the life of faith. And in this case, faith means what? A relation with Christ. Faith is not about me becoming a better, more righteous person. It's about me becoming a person who's more in step and in line, in relation to Christ directly. So justification leads us down a path of humility. So by making this all about Christ, what am I saying about myself? 
about me. If we did make it about me, then we couldn't say verse 21. I do not nullify the grace of God. What would nullify the grace of God? Any belief that this was by works. You ever come to church and go, man, I deserve to be here. We just nullify the grace of God. You say, well, my, I have such great faith. I really, I'm definitely one of those good examples of the righteous. I sat in that chair for 20 years. <laughs> Don't get too specific. No. <laughs> but yeah, exactly. We come up with all sorts of things. We, we have a very strong propensity once we're in faith to become the elder brother in the prodigal son story, to become the Pharisee, to become these Judaizers, the circumcision party. We want to make it us and make us special. All of those things nullify the grace of God. And here's the conclusion. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. If you ever say, I deserve to be here, you're saying, Jesus made a mistake. He did it wrong. He messed up. Which, of course, from Paul's vantage point, would be what? False gods. Heresy. Exactly. All right, so we fill in the last one. So justification leads us on the path of humility. It humbles us. And that path leads us to the table for fellowship with Christ. So who gets to sit at the table? Right now. Well, the righteous. Sinners. The righteous who are now in the camp of righteous who were sinners because they're in relationship to Jesus. So who can you have table fellowship with? Any believer. On any side of any fence. Church will have complete unity here. It's the number one unity that we have. It's the blood of Christ. Nothing else counts in this regard. Alright, table fellowship. So that's justification. We're going to talk about justification again every week basically for the rest of Galatians. So, um, super nerdy this time. I gave all the answers. No, no you actually skipped the section. Did I typo something? Which one? <laughs> There's a couple. I'm sorry. The last... Yeah. I got a sheet right here. I'm sorry. Someone's, yeah. All right, so let's, which one? All, right. All the Jewish believers knew that they had become Christians by faith alone. Oh, that they had. I read it with it in there. Wow. Talk about knowing what you meant. The two groups are the righteous and the sinners. When they, isn't all sin in conflict with the gospel? What, what was the middle? Paul is accusing Peter. Paul is accusing Peter is false. Okay, it should be Paul is accusing Peter oh. of oh. acting. Yeah. Of acting. Sorry. You know. Again, like I said, English. <laughs> we knew not, not, not my thing. Not my thing. Example. Extreme example. Okay. What was it, Jim? I thought it was going to be living. Living. Oh, the, the Peter one? That would that would be true too. Some of my blame. It's just it's just what word I picked. You know? I mean there would be eight right words, but you gotta get my right word. Well, Peter was right, except for this time. This is a time where 
Yeah, so Peter, he had no doubt that Peter had the gospel right, which is why I think Paul's all the more indignant. It's like Peter should know better. Because he doesn't believe a false gospel, but he's living one. And I would argue just based on the from the Jerusalem church. Yeah. Yes. James, was also James is on the Gentile team right. in the final verdict for sure. I was about to say, wasn't it unusual that, that Peter would shrink back? Again, I don't yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so this is probably Peter's worst post-resurrection mess up. Yeah. Is this James the brother of Jesus? Yes, yeah, because James the Apostle was killed back in Acts chapter 11. Or, All right, false. Yeah, in 11, in 11, 11 or 12, so before this. Are you a baby or son? Okay. This is your daddy's, you can take it home with you. Yeah, yeah. He shrunk back. I mean, even Barnabas, like, these guys must have been persuasive, because Paul's like, even Barnabas. Barnabas knows. He's the one who validated the Antioch mission to start with. That's like him contradicting his entire stamp of approval. So, so it was pretty persuasive of him. We recreate the scenario over and over and over and over again. Like, I would be surprised if I can't believe these people that I know don't see it like I do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Absolutely. We and we love drawing lines in the sand over things that aren't gospel issues, and we want to whatever the thing we're good at is our circumcision. You know, like if, if we're good at, we don't do blank in our lives. I know as a kid, like if you didn't cuss, you were you were next to Jesus and holiness. For sure, it's a big you could cheat on your taxes. That didn't matter. But as long as you didn't cuss, you know. Cleanliness, you know, all kinds of things. Mowing your grass was a sign of a faithful Christianity. And again, mowing your grass on Sunday was proof you were going to hell. Like that's that. I grew up in that world. So, all kinds of things. We can, if we brainstormed the list, we'd we'd be amazed what we could come up with. Yeah, yeah. In a perfect world, you'd have a seven-day Adventist on the other side, and you'd get all weekend off. <laughs> <laughs> I remember as a kid driving by and saw one of the deacons mowing grass oh, on our way to church, and I remember thinking, he must be a wolf in sheep's clothing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I was trained in that worldview, so it's just what it is. Okay, it's it's time, so I'm going to go ahead and close this in prayer. God, we thank you tonight. Pray you bless them study that we're having. I pray that as we continue to work through Galatians, it would um, get more meaningful as we understand the implications of grace and faith more clearly. And I pray you'd help us to be faithful in our lives, to be faithful to Christ in response to his faithfulness to us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.